as men, we can become preoccupied with financial success. I've certainly felt that at times myself. But the team and I have designed a quiz that's going to help you improve your intentions to achieve better results for your career and business. And there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end of this episode. But for now, enjoy listening. As the day started to get darker and darker, I'm walking down this really desolate looking street. It was getting cold. It was wet. And uh, this woman started talking to me and Est-ce que tu veux rentrer avec moi? You know, like, do you want to come back to my place? And I was thinking, this is, this is too good to be true. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. Today we're digging into a lifetime spent adventuring often in treacherous places, and the privilege involved in being a male traveller. Nick Danziger is an award-winning photographer, documenting people and places all over the world. His appetite for adventure started young, when he was just 13. Living with his family in Switzerland, Nick was inspired by the exploits of Tintin and all the great artists he admired. One spring evening in 1970, young Nick made an announcement to his parents at the dinner table. We were having this conversation and, and I remember saying to them very clearly that, you know, I'm going off to Paris for the week. And I don't think they thought much of it because obviously at that age, you know, you don't have your passport, you don't have money. And also, how was I going to get there? But little did they know I really did have this plan. And I felt that, you know, I could manage for a few days on what I was going to put in my tiny rucksack. Liquid apple, dried biscuits. One of the really important things that I, I, I took with me was a sketch pad. And little did I realize at the time that this was going to be the way that I would end up surviving on the streets. I remember leaving home, walking out the door, and my parents weren't there to say goodbye because I thought, if I say goodbye, they really will stop me. A new act changed trains. I worked out the train schedule. It was a night train. I knew I'd have to stay awake for most of that journey because I was worried about the ticket control because I didn't have a train ticket. I felt I was going on a big adventure. There were some nerve, nerves because, you know, I was going into the unknown. I sat in the aisle seat on the first train because I knew that I needed to see when the ticket collector was going to head towards my compartment. So when he was in the previous compartment and I could see him, I headed to the toilets and the secret was actually to go into the toilets and knock the door. Because if I locked the door, what I noticed was with other passengers, they would knock on the door and ask for the ticket. So they either waited for the passenger to emerge or they would ask for the ticket to be passed under the door. The really difficult and most nervous point on that train journey was that how long do I remain in this bus? Because you know that people are going to use the toilets. Arriving in Paris, I think that that's when I, it hit me that I was there on my own. You know, this massive city. Get off the train. The, the train station alone was much bigger than any train station I'd been to before. I remember walking out and just how busy it was, you know, with buses everywhere. And all I had in my head was, you know, go to the first museum. You know, I had a list of kind of the museums I wanted to visit. I knew I had to be really careful how I spent, you know, my money. But it was just like a new world. I mean, 
freedom, but mixed with kind of a, a lot of angst. When I got into the museum, it was it's another kind of form of uh, liberty, you know, quite, you know, seeing all of these works of art that I'd never seen for real. I felt on a real high. It, it was just an amazing feeling. As the day started to get darker and darker, I'm walking down this really desolate looking street. It was getting cold. It was wet. And uh, this woman started talking to me and she was so kind. And I thought, oh, this is really nice. You know, as an impressionable 13 year old, she seemed so attractive. High heel boots, a skirt, you know, very tight blouse, long hair. And there she was, you know, inviting me to her home. Est-ce que tu veux rentrer avec moi? You know, like, do you want to come back to my place? And I was thinking, this is this is too good to be true, especially on a low budget. I was thinking, how kind of her, you know? Out of the generosity of her heart, she's taken pity on me walking around late at night in the rain <laughs> next to what, you know, was known at the time as about the cheapest place you could find a room in Paris. So at the end of meeting this woman, how did it go after that? How was the conversation exchange? How did you end that with her? What I realized as time progressed that, you know, she wasn't alone on this street. I noticed there were other women propositioning men as they went by. And I, it, that's when the reality dawned on me that it, it wasn't out of the kindness of her heart that she was inviting me back to her place. It only then much later on dawned on me that she was a sex worker. Further down the road, I met other women. That's when it really became clear to me that they had other intentions and that I'd been very, very naive in that initial conversation. I suppose, you know, as a 13-year-old, you know, maybe that's what a 13-year-old is, but I think they're more street savvy today. And I went back to my, my little squalid room, which was going to be the last night. Actually, I spent two nights in that squalid room and then, then it was out into the uh, hiding in, in the parks. Did you meet anyone else like that? Did you meet any other characters along your journey? I was always nervous about meeting people. You know, people came up to me. I, one of the ways that I was able to survive was drawing sketches and obviously sketches of tourist monuments. And most people were, were very friendly. You know, what was I doing? They were interested in the sketches that I was making. But there was always a corner of me that was a little bit, you know, suspicious or nervous of, of people who came up, you know, to speak to me. So that was self-generated. And, uh, I think just I was trying to be, you know, very careful of, you know, my own personal security. I mean, I think about it today, you know, I don't think I'd have let my, any of my children age 13 off <laughs> on their own in similar circumstances. That was going to, going to be my next question. If you had the same scenario played back to you, how would you feel about it? Well, my kids keep on saying to me when I say, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. And they say, but dad, you went off age 13. <laughs> you know, why can't I do this? You know, they all have ideas of also going away. You know? And um, so I think the adventure aspect is there. But I think you know, the world probably has changed and indeed a bit less secure. But I was still, I, you know, there were times I was, I was pretty nervous. So to say that it was all just uh, fun uh, was not the case. I, I was often suspicious of people who came up to me. And indeed, when my money ran out, 
I ended up sleeping uh, in a park and I made sure that I was really well hidden because uh, I was afraid and that was an uncomfortable feeling. I mean, it's very difficult because subsequently, now that I have kids, I mean, I do go into conflict zones. I go into areas where particularly, you know, white foreigners are being kidnapped. So both my wife and I, she she is a humanitarian aid worker. So we we often, as the kids were growing up, keep them away from certain news items because we know something has happened in the world that they will think, oh, next time mom and dad or, you know, one of us goes off on a mission that this could befall us. So we're very careful as to, as they were growing up, what they did here and didn't hear. But unfortunately, my early adventures, <laughs> they were very aware of it from an early age as well. Mm. And this is the problem, I suppose, with the internet nowadays and the access to information that kids have got. It's probably a lot more than when I was a child, when you were a child and, and other people. It's quite difficult to filter that, isn't it? I think today with social media, you know, they see so much of the world, but it's not the reality. And and so often people think what I do today, oh, isn't it fantastic? You go to all these places. But the reality on the ground is so very different. And my, I myself, I'm still today, I get really nervous. I'm in situations where I say, never again. You know, I think about the family. I realize just how selfish it's been because, you know, if you disappear, you I mean, I'm an uninvited guest. I don't have to go into these situations. But indeed, you know, I'm drawn back and back again. And I guess, you know, part of that is as far back as I can remember from that journey, it's been something that's always been there. It, it, it continues to be discovering new cultures and languages and ways of living. And I guess also focusing on, on vulnerable and marginalized communities. I think of sex workers. A lot of my work today is in a way, um, to give them a voice, you know, to support, unfortunately, sometimes why they've ended up having to enter that type of work. Mm. What I wanted to ask you is, if you'd not done this journey when you were 13 to Paris, do you think you'd be doing what you were doing now? Or do you think it was a, you think you're always going to do this and this was just a catalyst that really just propelled you forward? I think there's no question of a doubt that that first journey just incited me to go off and off and off again. I mean, I came home. My parents obviously furious, but I think you know it, it was moderated. You know, I think they were they were happy to have me home. So you know, the idea of being really angry was was tempered. I, I remember them not. You know, I was expecting the worst, and I think it could have been a lot worse. What did they do? They they stopped my pocket money. They were very careful, but it didn't prevent me from going on subsequent adventures. And so obviously. I wouldn't have gone on those subsequent trips had I not had this extraordinary first journey. And it really, I think, was the catalyst to propel me to go further and further afield. And since I can remember, everything has been geared to, you know, even today, you know, going to foundations, looking for funds to go off and seek a way to, to show others how people elsewhere in the world live. We only have one home and it's an extraordinary planet and the diversity we should be celebrating. And every time I go away, I learn so much from the people I visit. And it's been humbling to want to discover more about who we are as, as human beings and people. And for all the horrible things I see and all the difficulties, I meet such remarkable people. 
when you work in another country that's not your own, a foreign country, you'll learn at three times the rate at which you would be working back in your home country. Have you ever felt like that over the years that your, your learning has just accelerated much more so than if you were in England or you're in Switzerland? Well, one of the amazing things about travel is that it just extends your horizons, not just geographically, but the way you think, the way you take on and see the world. You know, it's, it's mind expanding. It's, it's incredible to think just how many different ways we live. I think we all aspire to very similar goals in life, but how we achieve those, peace, autonomy, freedom, all the things that we aspire to, there are different ways of achieving what we want to achieve in the world. And I think it's just, it's so unfortunate that the world is so divided, not just politically, but economically, that so much of the world today is living in circumstances that coming from a white, privileged European background is just not the case for the majority of the planet. And, you know, I so believe in that universal declaration of human rights that, you know, we're all born equal in rights and dignity, but it's just not true. It depends where you're born on this planet, when and to whom. And just to think, wow, just because I was born in that place at a certain time with the parents I had, it's just given me the opportunities that I have today. I think it's just incredible to think that so much depends on where you were born, when, and to whom. It's like, you know, deck of cards. And it's it's not just chance. And and it what's unfair, so really unfair, is that the deck of cards is stacked. You know, it's just in some places it's just gonna be that much harder. And it's humbling to see what people go through to to survive. And it makes me think it's not just just where we're born. I mean, it's also our gender. I mean, in so many places I travel to, the fact that I'm a man, you know, it makes just such a difference. I mean, people go on about Afghanistan and the lack of rights for girls and women, but in northwestern Pakistan, when I'm in the streets there, I don't even see a woman in the streets. There are tribal areas, it's called Fatah in northwest Pakistan. I mean, it's frightening to think today just the inequalities that exist in the world based on the color of your skin, based on your beliefs, based on your economic circumstances. And those words of Martin Luther King keep coming back to me where, you know, he wants his four children not to be judged on the color of his skin, but on the content of his character. And I can only tell you, that, you know, after all of the travels over decades across the world, I can't even think of the amount of countries I've been to. You know, there's one thing that's for sure, that it's the content of people's character. There are great people everywhere I've been who deserve so much more. And in my poor little way is, you know, if I can give a voice through my photography and documentary films and books to to them, you know, that's, that's, you know, what I would like to do, but I hate even our Western centric, you know, it's all based around who you are. I know that I can, you know, get my foot in the door of media organizations because the name is recognizable. And even that I think is unfair. You know, why, 
why do I get to put the foot in the door when someone might have a better story, it might have stronger pictures than mine, but, you know, the editor doesn't recognize that person's name. And I'm not saying, you know, we've got to be knocked down all the doors, but, you know, we tend in life to always defend our own position and that makes it so much harder for everyone else. Mm. And when I'm going to different countries as well and people from all different walks of life, different religions, different skin colors, I'm constantly reminding myself about, like you say, the content of their character. And I mean, I, I think that that's something I've always tried to do anyway, because I've always been aware of how lucky I am to be white, English-speaking male from the UK. But when you meet certain people who've got this, for me, it's 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 in the eyes, it's the, the zest for life, the the excitement for life. And, and when you get speaking to them and they tell you about the books they're reading or the people they've met, that really brings out to me is like, wow, I really want to get to know this person more. And it could be all different kinds of people, old people, young people. And, you know, if you're constantly exploring and trying to find those people, instead of just being in the, the typical sort of tourist spots, if you kind of venture out, you will meet those people. And, you know, the, you're meeting those people all the time, year on year for what, however many decades, four decades, five decades you've been doing this. Yeah, I mean, I've been so lucky because I think, just it's been a window into other people's lives. But when I say other people, it could be a heart transplant surgeon. It could be a miner looking for gold in one of the most extreme corners of our planet. It can be sex workers. It can be so many varieties of peoples. And it's just been this extraordinary position of privilege, not just to meet you people, but everything that they do. There's such a vast panoply of, of people across the world that are carrying out you know, daily tasks that help us continue to function. And, and sadly, truth be told, is that, you know, the majority of the world's resources come from the global south. And you know, they're the ones without the wherewithal to purchase what they would like to have or even have a basic standard of living or quality of life, which I would say would be access to healthcare, access to education. And yet they're the ones providing us with a, an incredible standard of living if we look at the global average. I'm curious as to what your mentality was when you were 13 and what your outlook on life was. And I'm curious, when you were 13, did you have that feeling of, I'm a man now, even though you're not? But you have this feeling of, I'm a man and, and I can go about the world and there's no dangers out there. What, what sort of little boy were you? You know, growing up, I felt pretty invincible, but that may be a lot of teenagers. You know, nothing can stop you. There's no question as, as a boy, I was yet to be even a man, but I just felt that I was really fortunate. I think now I'm much more aware that I'm, I've been really fortunate to have been born a man. And so many of my stories have now featured uh, women in vulnerable positions, uh, a project called Women Facing War, for example. But I think there's no question of a doubt that my gender allowed me to do so much of what I've done up, up to now, really, and, he, and, and then even continue to do. And, and, I, and I think something that I haven't really ever spoken about, but I mean, I think with those privileges, it just it made me understand not just those privileges of, of gender and class, but it, it pushed me on to look further afield. I mean, age 17, I, 
I ended up in Bolivia, going down a Bolivian mine. And I think then that really, I, I, I think rage then, I, I mean, again, gender. I mean, the, the, there were boys younger than me then working in the mines, stripped down to their underwear, no protective clothing. Most didn't, now, they, they wouldn't allow me in the mine unless I wore the protective clothing and, and a headlamp so I could see ahead of me. They were, they were pushing these kind of chariots full of, of the raw rock up to the surface. And, and th this is where I realized that, you know, I, I had privilege on top of privilege. And I, and I want to mention gender because it, it also feels pretty emaciating. It's the opposite. Rather than feel an additional power, I felt almost emasculated by it because you just feel like, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't right. And, and there the tragedy was that the menfolk were dying of silicosis. They would breathe in this, this dust. Their lungs would end up, uh, unfortunately, curtailing their lives. And the women in this, this village were, were often widowed because the husbands had died because of the silicosis. And yet again, you saw the vulnerability of women. They were powerless. So that's actually kind of emasculating. You think this is yet another unfair privilege, kind of layer upon layer. So in a sense, I think it, it, it's... It's, it's been really difficult and it's doubly difficult hearing those stories because you feel in, in the cases of, of so much violence, it, it's men perpetuating the violence. I mean, I've, I've, I've met, I mean, uh, you're in Latin America and I've met female fighters from the ELN in Colombia, for example. Um, and, you know, but you listen to their stories as well and, and, and you can see that they're, they're struggling as well for social justice. So, you know, if a woman's taken up arms, it's usual for social justice. It, it's not for power. There's another dynamic there. So I think that's really interesting. And, and what I've so often found is, you know, women get not only victimized once, but, you know, they get re-victimized as a result of something that's already happened to them. So in cases of sexual violence, they, they then can't return to their community, their villages, because they have been seen in some way to have, you know, breached the norm. They are not the victims, and yet, you know, not only have they been a victim, but they're re-victimized. It's just this vicious cycle that goes round and round again, and you think to yourself, well, we're in 2023. The progress is just not being made. The thing that I keep knocking my head is like, you know, when do we learn? You know, it's like the 21st century, and some of the wars that have taken place, it's just history repeating itself. Why haven't the politicians read the history books? Why haven't we less learned the lessons from the past? Why are we repeating the same errors? Why are we doing the same things that continue not only to repress others, but they come back to haunt us? If we don't live in a balanced world, we know that eventually we will suffer the circumstances. Mm-hmm. The last point I want to talk about today, Nick, is more of a lighter topic, I suppose, is how smart and savvy you were as a 13-year-old to get around the ticket conductor and dodge the ticket fare. Because it, I've heard about friends, even at college and university, who were hiding in the bathroom, but they would lock the door. So I've never heard of this story before where you actually keep the door open. And I just find that really creative for someone so young. I think I became savvy fairly early on because obviously, you know, 
invention, well, needs is the mother of invention. And um, I shouldn't really go into it here, but, you know, trains was only the beginning. It then went on to planes until I was 16 when my dad said, enough is enough. You know, you could get arrested for this. And I remember he gave me an interrail pass. And being American, I think it was $100. And I said, you know, how am I going to man manage on $100? And he said, if you've managed on nothing, you do very well on $100. But, I mean, the reality is that I think I've gone on from that. I want a Churchill Fellowship to follow ancient trade routes to China. I was heading off to to China along the ancient Silk Roads. And this was in 1984 when there was the war between Iran and Iraq and the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan. And they they said to me, well, how many, have you got visas for these countries? And I said, no. And they said, well, you're telling us you want to, you know, you, you want to leave next week. And I said, yeah, yeah. They said, well, how are you going to manage? And I said, I'm sure I will. I don't need any visas. And in fact, I made that journey all the way from Eastern Europe, all the way to China without any visas, crossed the border that hadn't been crossed since 1949. I mean, I think, you know, part of what I've done, I mean, I started by saying, you know, obviously that journey had a great impact on my life and was a catalyst, but I love football and I always supported Chelsea and I had a fake press card. And when I show up at a game, I, I realized I had this incredible opportunity to be down there on the touchline. And I remember the way to do it was like, you know, I, I'd pretend that I was from Agence France Press and they'd, they'd look for the press pass and they said, I can't fight it. And, and with a French accent, I go, Oh, I, I don't know how you say, but the, the, you know, the, the, the agence, they send me here and the, there is no possibility that it's not possible. It's, uh, I, I, sorry, but uh, how you, and I'm trying to get them to help me with it. The, and then in the end, it was like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, and, and they'd give me the pass and I'd go down on the touchline. And I went with this camera that my uncle had, had given me as a present because he knew I was interested in photography. And, and then I thought, wow, with a camera, look at the opportunities that you have to have another view on life. And I've only just thought of that now, but it was all, yeah, I mean, it was this adventure, but just thinking, what is the end goal? How do I get there? And it's often opened up, you know, incredible corridors and, and doors. What a story. It's all about adventure and it's something that I've always tried to do in my own life. I've thought about why I enjoyed the episode so much and it's because Nick broke all the rules about what's accepted and what's not. Imagine a 13-year-old today up in sticks and going on a solo trip to Paris. I've always been defiant since being a child, just like Nick was. Probably the reason why I've got my own business now, why I was sacked from so many jobs when I was younger. I can really relate to Nick's travels whilst he was on his way to Paris, because from the age of 16 to 21, I used to repeatedly dodge the ticket conductor on the trains whilst going to and from college and university. I had this cheeky sort of Del Boy persona and I just thrived off the idea of breaking rules and getting away with things. Looking back on this, in some ways I'm not proud of what I did, but I realised that it was a real act of rebellion on my part. Creating strategies, determination, grit, putting the work in, whatever you want to call it, these are all traits that have helped me with creating and developing and growing my own business. Talking about male privilege earlier, I feel like if Nick was a girl, I think he would have been far less likely to have done this solo trip. 
I went through a lot of my life not realizing how privileged I am to be a man. And this is something that I absolutely took for granted. However, that same male privilege has bit me on the ass on quite a few occasions, one of which I documented in one of our episodes, uh, which I talked about my own story called Processing Trauma, if you'd like to listen to that, where I got attacked in Oaxaca in Mexico. This whole concept of male privilege was brought up again to me last week. I was out with three female friends and we were having food together and they were talking about when they walk outside solo, they get catcalled, they get all sorts of negative comments from men. But when they walk outside with another man or a group of people, they don't receive any comments whatsoever. What a world it is that women can't walk outside solo. Lastly, from speaking to Nick, I felt a real kinship to him and I felt it as almost he was like a role model to me. Nick has gone through his life defying rules and I think rules are obviously there for a reason. In some cases, they're really important, but in some ways I think there's almost too much bureaucracy with rules and Nick is the kind of person who just defied those rules and went ahead and did whatever the hell he wanted to do with his life. I mentioned at the start about us as men caring a lot about financial success. The truth is, we all want to make money and excel in our work. But understanding what drives us to our definition of success is important. That's why the team and I have designed a simple, easy quiz that's going to help you learn a lot about yourself and help set realistic targets for success. It takes less than three minutes to complete. We as men can be incredibly successful, driven individuals, but how we get there is important to understand, particularly for our mental health. Through the man quiz, you'll answer questions about your identity as a modern man. The aim is to better understand who you are to achieve the results you want in your life and work. Click the link to the quiz in the show notes now. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.